This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. If you love the Intelligent Scribe podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. A special program today after the UK's Prime Minister announces he is stepping aside following months of continuous scandal and an extraordinary 48 hours in which much of his closest circle deserted him. We ask an expert panel, how did it all come to this for Boris Johnson and what's next for the UK? To you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved, and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Boris Johnson there, speaking earlier today on a seismic day for British politics. Our host for this discussion is Manveen Rana, award-winning journalist and host of Stories of Our Times for the Times newspaper. Let's join Manveen and our guests in conversation. Hello and welcome on what is, by any measure, an extraordinary day in British politics. We'll be reflecting on the resignation of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and a government in an unprecedented crisis. And in order to do that, we're joined by two brilliant journalists and Westminster watchers to discuss the momentous events of recent days and what we might expect to happen over the coming hours, days and weeks. We're joined firstly by Jonathan Friedland, who is a Guardian columnist and author, and who's also a past winner of the Orwell Prize for Journalism. He also presents BBC Radio 4's contemporary history series, The Long View, as well as two podcasts, Politics Weekly America for The Guardian and Unholy, alongside the Israeli journalist Yonit Mibi. We're also joined today by Simon Jenkins, who's also a Guardian columnist and author, and a former editor of The Evening Standard and The Times. And we're really delighted you could both join us today. Now, this event is going to run for an hour. And for the first half, I'm going to be in discussion with Jonathan and Simon. And then we'll be taking some of your questions. And I imagine on a day like today, you'll have a few. So if you want to, do start asking them now by clicking on the Q&A button uh, at the bottom of the screen. And we'll try to get through as many as possible. If you want us to use your name, please do add that to your question um, before you press send. Uh, Jonathan and Simon, what a day. I think we can we can finally put the old adage of the week is a long time in politics away because it feels like we've lived several lifetimes in just the last few hours. We've just seen Boris Johnson stand up outside Downing Street and deliver his resignation speech amid boos that you could hear from the, the, the public gathered outside. Um, Simon, what did you make of it? 
Well, uh, th these eccentric occasions, they don't often happen. Um, one inevitably compares them with other such occasions. Um, uh, I think Theresa May was uh, tearful. Margaret Thatcher was tearful. Um, Boris Johnson was characteristically boisterous almost. Um, uh, he couldn't stop sort of bellyaching a bit about you know, the herd moves in and all those sort of phrases. Um, he's very disappointed, very upset. Um, but I think as, as far as that goes, uh, we, we, we almost say good luck to him. I mean, he, he, he went out with good grace, let's put it that way. He didn't show much contrition. When did he ever? <laughs> uh, he doesn't do contrition. Uh, it, 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 it is really one of his great, I mean, it, is his, it was his undoing, this inability to show contrition, um, to show self-doubt. I mean, it, it's very important to a politician, and we mustn't, I think, judge politicians by other lights sometimes. Self-confidence is vital. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that what you're doing is the right thing to do. You have almost to believe that everybody else is doing the wrong thing. Uh, but the one thing you don't do is say sorry very often. Uh, I think it's a shortcoming in a politician, but it's, it's typical. Jonathan, what, what did you make of the speech? Well, no, I too was struck by that bullishness and the contrast with um, Theresa May's uh, tearful departure. Um, it, it, even actually, I remember when Gordon Brown did his, which was admittedly uh, an exit organised by the electorate rather than by the his fellow uh, party uh, MPs. You could tell he too was pretty emotional about doing it. Instead, Boris Johnson, was, it was no different from one of his you know, campaign appearances. You know, it yeah. was a bullish and upbeat, as Simon says. Um, and that, it speaks to a kind of hollowness in Boris Johnson, I think. I mean, they, you know, people have often wondered what to their underneath the mask and underneath the sort of bluff exterior. And the answer is not that much, I think. And so um, he wasn't able really to do much more than his usual shtick. In a way, I too clocked the digs at others, the uh, line about accusing them of being essentially a stampeding herd, as if the reason for his departure was a wave of hysteria that mm. had caught up his, his naive and um, bovine colleagues uh, who'd been caught up in this. Um, and, and so therefore, that go, that's the other side instantly of no contrition, because there was no hint that this was anything to do with him. Uh, instead, it was just a change in the weather that happens. And he did that usual thing which he's always done because he does like crafting his own narrative, which is he sought to write his own headline with this line, them's the breaks. You know, he wants yes. that to be that, you know, he's, he's, he's taking the sun and mirror sub-editors jobs for them and thinking, put that in there uh, as if fate undid him nothing to do. Uh, with him. And I think that's, you know, in a way, one of the reasons, as I think Simon mentioned, for his undoing. It did sound as if he was blaming the party and still felt that the public was on side, despite the booze you could hear from the street. Well, yes. I, I, I mean, sorry, you, you go ahead, Simon. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't see he could do anything else. I mean, he had fought to stay uh, beyond the bounds of dignity. Uh, he humiliated himself, I think, over the past 24 hours. He was trying to recover some of that dignity, I think, um, in part by referring to what is what is his basically his entire ruling narrative. Um, it's not the party; it's me. Uh, I am the person who got you into power, like 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 you've been in power. I am the person who appealed to a new slab of voters on the Labour side. Um, I'm popular. I, I'm the, those people outside in the street. They're my people, even if they're booing now. Um, so um, so yeah, that 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 is me. 
Uh, and I think I think that it, it's, it's almost understandable that he should say why was he trying to stay in stay in power? He stayed in power because he felt he had a mandate to do so. And Jonathan, while talking about his his great love for the public and the public he's met, you know, he was also promising to to keep the country going until somebody is appointed to take his place. I mean, does that sound like he still thinks he's going to hang on until about the autumn? Or should we be thinking about other caretakers? I mean, what, what happens now? I think there is something uh, in that uh, notion of him saying, I want more time, uh, that in a normal politician, you would think, okay, he's just talking about being a caretaker. But with him, you do have to wonder what he's up to. And I think... Um, the thought that he is up to something there is potent because uh, he's one of those people, my colleague, Raphael, our colleague, Raphael Baer, earlier today, said that he's like one of those um, highly competitive athletes who thinks even if the scoreline is massively against them, lopsidedly against them, and there's only 20 seconds left of the game, he thinks so long as you're still playing, you haven't lost and you might still have a chance. Uh, something could come up. And I think there's something in that with Boris Johnson that he thinks, OK, October, mm, you know, let's see. Let's see what if you live to fight another day, um, who knows what can happen? Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, I think the, you know, his colleagues are saying, no, we've got to actually get him out. You saw Dominic Cummings has tweeted in the last few hours saying it'll be carnage, classic Cummings language, it'll be carnage if you let him stay, uh, because he right. will do all kinds of things. He'll make mischief, he'll appoint people, he'll mm. start new policies, etc. to make it impossible to remove him or make it more difficult to remove him. So, you know, people have already forgotten that, of course, Theresa May stayed as prime minister only three years ago, while the Tories found a new leader. No one uh, raised even an eyebrow at that because people knew that she would abide by the unspoken conventions. He doesn't even abide by the spoken conventions, you know, so he's not going to uh, play this game normally. And that is why people who know him well are thinking, you know, get the removal men in right now, because otherwise, who knows what this guy is capable of. So Jonathan, what are you, what are you hearing? What does happen next? You know, I know that there's lots of talk of Dominic Raab, for example, potentially stepping in. Um, what what does yes I mean what does they, they, but well they they have to get they would have to get Boris Johnson to agree to there being some kind of interim or acting prime minister they would you know that person would have to go and see the Queen and that you can't be half you know half pregnant when it comes to being prime minister you would have to be sworn in as it were as prime minister and a visit to the palace and so on and so there Boris Johnson still has some leverage I mean just because he would have to agree to that so. What do you what what happens? The the 1922 committee uh, will meet on Monday and arrange these uh, an election for a new executive. They could, as their very first act, say we're having a vote of no confidence. People talk about having it on Tuesday. You know, who knows? They could say we'll have it right now. But let's say they did it on Tuesday, and it would be done by Tuesday night. And that could say the upshot of that could be instant departure. You have to go now. Um, but it's difficult because that is about, the, all the 1922 committee has sway over is the role of leader of the Conservative Party, which job Boris Johnson has resigned from now. Uh, 
The job of prime minister, it's more complicated. You know, that is, that's that's not in the gift of the 1922 committee. So you're into quite constitutionally murky water, water which normally no one ever had to really navigate (laughs) because no one tested it. And, you know, Peter Hennessy says that we've relied on the good chap theory of government. And until Boris Johnson, you could rely on that. But he may, he doesn't, he's not a good chap and he won't, he won't follow those rules. So, you know, it's not, it's not a done deal. I mean, Simon, that that is one of the things that's become really apparent in in this whole saga. You know, waking up this morning, there was a sense that nobody quite knew how this would end. Boris Johnson might just have refused to leave altogether. You know, has this really tested the limits of our constitution? What would we have done if he if he hadn't issued this resignation speech? Well, I I think we're being a bit overdramatic here. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there have been messy resignations. The essence of parliamentary democracy is, is, is often messiness. That, uh, we, don't, we don't have fixed terms. We don't have a simple system whereby the president you know, rides a cavalcade up to constitutional or whatever it is. Um, you, you, you have to accept that this, these things are not often dignified in, in many ways. Teddy's departure wasn't very dignified. Um, uh, I, I mean, certainly Theresa Mays wasn't very dignified. Uh, even David Cameron's is a bit odd. Um, I, I think we've just got to accept that this is a bit messy. Yeah, I slightly think it's one notch below scheming and plotting. It's it's more just that sense of a ultra competitive man who thinks you never know, and and it's better to be in than out. Um, uh, 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 but I agree. I mean, the tenor of his speech today was one of somebody who is uh, eyeing the exit. But he's not going to do it quick. I also think, by the way, a very trivial point, but one worth remembering, is politicians, senior politicians, are much more obsessed than you think they would be by the stats, by the record book. And if mm. Boris Johnson leaves on Tuesday, he will have been a shorter serving prime minister than Theresa May. Uh, he will be briefer than her. And she is regarded as a byword for failure among conservatives. There will be a piece of him that thinks, Give me two or three more weeks so I can have been in office longer than she was. That's all it needs, by the way. And then, then I'll go. And, and if you think that's trivial, I remember talking to people around Tony Blair in 2006-07 who said he wants to have done 10 years, 10 calendar years. May the 1st, 2007 will mean 10 years. Then he'll be happy. And you think that's just a date on a calendar. Why does that? It matters to these people and their egos. It matters. In a way, um, we know that Boris Johnson has always sort of looked towards, you know, his um, uh, his sailability as, you know, sort of a, a columnist in, and I guess a, a, a public speaker in the future. Uh, does he also need to sort of improve his exit? Does he need to make it look a little bit better before he steps down in order to make sure he gets the speaking gigs he's hoping for in the future? There's been a lot of really interesting discussion about that. Um, in the last 48 hours or so. And and interesting because conflicting. Um, Andy Coulson, uh, who knows a thing or two about comms and spin, he was um, a former editor of the News of the World and spin doctor for um, David Cameron before things became a a cropper a bit. Uh, He um, has written that, you know, Boris Johnson has always been a teller of tales and a crafter of narratives. And his his view is that the... Uh, dramatic, chaotic exit makes for a better story and a more saleable memoir than a nice, <laughs> orderly, calm Theresa May, May style exit. On the other, that's one view. I mean, it's On the other historic. hand, you know, that it's he's, he's made a bit of history, it's more dramatic, it's more historic, etc. Then on the other hand, you talk to, and as I did actually just yesterday, somebody pretty senior in publishing who thinks, 
the, uh, uh, Johnson memoir is radioactive at the moment, and very few publishers would want to go near it. It says really? this source because um, he's he's just a sort of toxic brand um, right now. And that what he needs to do, runs this advice, is to take some time out, maybe do, you know, just just let some time pass, perhaps on the back benches, perhaps doing, you know, uh, he could do work on his Shakespeare biography or whatever, and leave some time for the memoir. So who's right, the publishing guy or Andy Coulson? You know, I leave it to our um, our very well-informed audience to weigh that one up. And I suppose also for, for speaking gigs, particularly the ones abroad, um, you know, sort of people like Tony Blair had sort of had a great reputation in America, for example. You did wonder in the last 24 hours what the rest of the world must make of us watching what's happening with this sort of, um, you know, sort of truculent prime minister who's refusing to leave. Um, what, what, yeah, what, 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 how do, no, how do I agree. we look on the world stage? Well, interesting, because I, I I did an interview just yesterday with an American TV network, and what surprised me was their sense that this was all actually a bit eccentric and British and funny, because they said, oh, you know, Boris um, Donald Trump was guilty of this terrible abuse of power where he wanted to overturn an election, whereas your guy is being driven from office because he had a birthday party with a slice of cake. You know, isn't that what it's all about? And... Not, you know, we know, not really, um, but it fitted a sort of amusing Britain, you know, defenestrating a leader over a tea party. Um, not, you know, that wasn't fully understood, but that's interesting if that's the perception, um, rather than him being seen as, I think, you know, his critics here see him as being on a par with or in the same camp as a Donald Trump, Victor Orban, etc. this mm. populist who with contempt for rule of law, it seems the Boris persona, the kind of clownish, amusing buffoon persona, has somehow um, lived on in the United States. But but one thing I thought was noticeable from his resignation speech that did make me think he's got an eye on his future was the big chunk he dedicated to Ukraine. And I think that was with an eye on the lecture circuit in mind, where he's thinking, I'm treated as a hero there. They love me there. Um, that's a platform on which to build. That That is the bit of his reputation that isn't toxic around the world because there's very few takers for Brexit internationally. It's not seen as a great idea or a big success. Um, but the saviour of Ukraine, you know, he'll get gig, speaking gigs in Lviv and then from there he can, he, I'm guessing, he will think, okay, I can turn that into gigs in, um, you know, uh, uh, Louisiana uh, and St. Louis after that. Simon, I mean, um, not just Boris Johnson's reputation on the world stage, but what has it what has it done for us, you know, as a country? How do you think Britain has viewed after the last twenty four hours? Uh, it's a moot point, I and mean, there's no doubt at all that Boris Johnson had the most extraordinary personality. He did communicate to people in ways that, that traditional politicians often didn't. Um, he's going to be very popular in Ukraine. Um, I, I know when he was in America, he was very popular with, with many of the people he met in America. He he is very good in a crowd, uh, and I think to an extent. Um, he sort of galvanised our public image um, in the brief period when he's in charge. That said, um, the, the relentlessness of the bad news coming out of Downing Street, absolute relentlessness, left American friends of mine completely amazed. And they, they really couldn't understand what had happened. So uh, I think at the end of it, he'll be seen as an episode, as, as a spasm of populist politics. It possibly, I, I hesitate to make ageist comparisons, but a bit like Donald Trump, a, a moment when the political system stood on its head, did something unusual, um, surprised us all, 
uh, entertained us all in a certain way uh, at a mm-hmm. curiously inappropriate time to do that, I may say. Um, but uh, you, you can't dictate these things. I do think he'll be a blip. Uh, and I rather, I rather fear that the, the return of the tedium uh, and the doldrums after him. Jonathan, is there something in that? You know, Trump always called him Britain Trump. Um, is he? Was, are there great parallels? Well, there are, you know, there, as always with these things, there are and there aren't. I mean, the, there aren't in the sense that uh, he's just given a resignation speech today without threatening to unleash a violent mob Yet. to ensure his, his own. Uh, I think even he, he would not cross that line. Um, you know, there, the, the, um, there was definitely, you know, a, a vein of racist prejudice that ran through Boris Johnson's writings about you know, Muslims, black women, old black people, Muslim women, and so on. Uh, and you can point to those in the writings. I don't think he weaponized race uh, in the way that um, Donald Trump did. Um, but the things that are in common, uh, and we saw them even today, actually, is this populist contempt for rules, for conventions, for democratic norms, for the rule of law, mm. this claim that he speaks and embodies the will of the people, that his critics are somehow uh, against the will of the people, uh, despite a, a super privileged background himself, offering himself as a tribune of the, of the masses against the elite. I mean, in Boris Johnson's case, it's such nerve. It's such a cheek uh, to pose that way when, you know, he is an absolutely a child of the establishment and the elite, but nevertheless, that's the appeal. And the central thing, the defining thing, is this uh, disregard, contempt, actually, for truth. And that is what made them twins across the Atlantic. It is what um, Donald Trump saw. I think it's why he saw uh, Boris Johnson as something of a kindred spirit, because they both had that, that willingness to just lie and lie and lie and not even, you know, break stride while doing it. I mean, just to say whatever was helpful for that minute, even if it was untrue. And it is proven to be Boris Johnson's undoing. I mean, it isn't just that he appointed a man um, serially accused of sexual misconduct as his deputy chief whip. It's that he lied about his claim uh, of ignorance of that record, claim not to have been specifically mm-hmm. told when he had, and um, you know that part, the, the, this, of course, I think would have been survivable had it not been for Partygate before, and Partygate turned again on lies. It was the deception, the lying that did it, and that is what the two of them absolutely have in common. I, I, I think we have to be slightly careful there. Um, I, I don't regard Boris Johnson as not Donald Trump. Um, uh, the lies that he told were what I would like to call procedural lies. Um, they were okay. the, 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 the ability to say half the truth and keep your fingers crossed behind your back, uh, as against uh, Donald Trump's monumental lies, um, uh, and, and, and by the thousand. Boris, it seems to me, is, is a slightly different phenomenon. Uh, he's, he's a bit like, um, so he's, a, he's a tough liar. Uh, the lies aren't desperately important. Um, they're somehow unavoidable, and he always thinks he can get away with them. But, but um, I don't think it's the lies that undid him, really. I think it's, it's, it's a triviality and undoubtedly the sleaze which, which really undid him. Uh, the feeling that he was in office to look after his friends, um, to, 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 to reward his allies, uh, to disregard ability, to disregard competence, a general feeling that he was, he was lowering the dignity of his office. 
Uh, and I think that that is what really undid him. I mean, people fasten on the lies because the lie is a fact. <laughs> um, these other things are much more nuances of office. Um, and I do think, I do think, because I think it's now is a moment we might at least be a little charitable. Um, I do think that the, the, the charm, the ability to persuade people that he's a good chap, even if he isn't, um, the fact that wherever Boris went, people tended to smile, uh, they cheered up a bit. Um, he, he's given politics a sort of a lesson in lift, which very, very few politicians in Britain, although many abroad, do. And it's the populist in him. Uh, I don't think populism as such is an evil thing. It's an evil thing when it's abused. But I do think he showed us um, that popularity in a po politician um, is, is a matter of personality and style. Uh, and it did, did, did deliver for him, for, let's say, for three years. So he, he, this is why Guardian readers do delight in our paper, because Guardian <laughs> writers often see the world very, very differently. Um, I, re I do disagree quite strongly with all of that. I mean, <laughs> partly because I think it's a, um, Sam makes a really interesting point about charisma and, and, and appeal. And I absolutely agree with him that he had that, uh, Boris Johnson, by the bucket load. That people will come, take away from this anything positive about that. I think the opposite will happen. I think people will... Uh, run a mile from the idea of, I, I don't think voters, by the way, but I mean, other po politicians and others mm. will think this is not a model to follow um, because he will be a warning. Uh, he'll be a cautionary tale about the power of the charismatic leader. Yes, people will say this guy can crack a joke mm. or this woman can deliver a good speech, but look where that got us last time. You know, um, he was, because Boris Johnson was, that was all he was. He was all performance, all shtick, all charisma. Um, it will be a warning. Don't be fooled again by that, because even with a, I mean, th let's just think on this. Even with an 80 seat majority, he's unravelled, and the government itself is 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 at breaking point. Well, um, that's an amazing thing to do, and that's because of, in a way, that that all he had was performance and shallowness. So I think he's 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 going to serve as an advertisement against those that suite of political skills. I would also say just something about populism. I mean, I think this idea that he's a tough liar is in a way what helps him. And it's a very British thing, which is we don't realise when someone is a kind of Victor Orban figure or a Donald Trump figure because they sound and look like one of the good, one of the chaps. And he had that Eton accent. And so it, we didn't think we couldn't think of him as a sinister sort of Bolsonaro type figure or whatever. But it was a mistake because there were big lies there. And I would say too, one is I think Brexit is a project founded on big lies, the lie that 350 million on the side of the bus, but also that we could stop trading in a free trade area with our closest neighbours and it would somehow make us richer, massive lie. But also Partygate wasn't about the bits and pieces about partying. It was about saying to people, these are the rules, we're all following them. These are life and death rules that will deprive you of contact with your loved one. And I'm laughing behind my hand because I'm not keeping them at all. That's no, There's nothing tough about that lie or, or gentle about that lie. That was a really deep attack, I think, on, on how people lived and made really grave decisions where they said, I'm not going to bid farewell to my dying father or mother because the rules don't let me. And they are now two years later, and they will for years, forever, think I was a fool because of what that man was doing. So I think they're serious to lies, the Boris Johnson lies. Uh, you know, they're, they're different from the Donald Trump lies. Not as serious as overturning a democratic election, but pretty but it, brave. 
it, 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 that wasn't a lie. It was a hypocrisy, I think. I mean, it was, they lied about it afterwards. But I think your objection in general to this uh, populism question is, is, is very sophisticated. And I'm, I'm not totally sure it bites. Um, I, I, I watched Boris Johnson. I watched Nigel Farage, two populist leaders of the past 10 years, on the stump. And I was always very impressed by the chemistry they produced in people. And I don't think the fact that they sometimes lied about the, the, sometimes what might seem min not minor things, but they were sort of minor things, um, is the issue. Uh, I don't even think the lie about Brexit is going to undo Brexit, something else will undo Brexit, which is just going to be cause, make our life a misery. Um, but uh, I just think as long as you've got people voting in elections for other people, that decision is going to be complex. It has traditionally been based on, um, on, on money, on want, on deprivation, on hope, all these things. Increasingly now, we're seeing it's being based on whether you like or find appeal in the person who's standing for election. And I think it's, it's dangerous. Uh, all I'm saying is I don't, I don't discount it. I think it's very important. And I think it's something you, you, you really should um, take account of in, in judging Johnson's brief period in British politics. I mean, do you, th do you think there is something about that form of charisma that makes people either love you or really hate you? So, you know, we sort of found that he was the prime minister who reached parts of the country that nobody else could. But when stories like Partygate came to light, it was those people who he'd reached, if he'd entertained before, who really turned against him, where he did become a toxic brand. I think, as I think Jonathan said, I think it was partly uh, uh, something to fasten on if you were opposed to Johnson. Um, uh, it was an easy thing to fasten on. Uh, uh, everybody is having small parties up and down the country. I don't know. I just, I just think, I think these were talisman, uh, like the Pinscher affair. These were talisman of other weaknesses. You fasten on ones that, that, that are headlineable, publicizable. Um, I, I, all I'm really saying here is um, I, the man had to go. I'm not defending him. All I am saying is that we need to draw the right lessons from this period in office. And I think, I think one of the things that he brought to politics and the lesson that we ought to learn is that this kind of appeal, uh, it, it had no ideology in it. No one was, I don't hear Boris saying anything. That said, you know, I will make you money or I'll tax you or do these things. He just smiled and joked and said stupid things and people rose to it. And I think they'll go on doing that uh, unless in some sense uh, you can find an answer to it. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. 
Jonathan, how do you think we'll look back on Johnsonism such as it is? I, I think um, we're in the right area here that um, Simon has steered us to. I just think I take a different view of it. I think this point about, uh, I just want to be precise about this term populism. What to me populism means is not just that you're charismatic on the stump. It means that you imagine there is some uh, conspiracy of elites against the great mass of the people, that the people are the, the people's interests are ranged against those of a self-serving establishment or elite. And that's Farage pressed that button. Johnson did as well. It is always very, very effective, especially if it's channeled by a charismatic or likable speaker. But it is sinister. And it is even when it comes with a charming smile and an eaten accent, it is sinister. Because what the for one thing, you know, who's defined as the elite? It can be, you know, who's the who are the few, who are the many? That can be shifted, and that has an unhappy history. But also, it means that very soon you start having a contempt for the rule of law, for institutions, for democratic constraints. Now, our system, in the end, held Boris Johnson in check. But let's not forget where he took this. Within two or three months of taking office, he thought he'd not sought; he did prorogue suspend Parliament because it threatened or did stand in his way on Brexit. And that took a decision of the Supreme Court, 11 judges to zero, to say that he what he had done was unlawful. But that was an insight into where this populist project was going, which is judges are enemies of the people, Parliament should be abolished, all rules should reside in the executive. And really, we've seen it in these last 48 hours, in me, in one person, because I have the mandate of the people. That is has a that is a strain of politics that has a chilling history and is dangerous. And that's what Boris Johnson introduced into British politics. Yes, he did it with a, a, a very you know winning style and a likable style. For, you know, if you like that kind of thing, I have to say, going back decades, I it didn't work on me. I, he's not my type. I didn't like it. Uh, you know, even when he was on a fire, I got news for you that. But that thing of the eaten, bumbling buffoon pretending not to know the lines when you do, it doesn't work on me. It doesn't, it leaves me cold. But I know other people like it and it worked for him. But I think, you know, I hope one of the legacies is that when someone comes to you with that performance, we start counting the spoons. We get wary because we should be wary about that kind of performer. I don't think Simon's wrong, though, that somehow, you know, dull, competent Keir Starmer is going to suddenly have the nation turning, uh, running towards his embrace. It doesn't work like that. You know, Mm -hmm. some people thought that after Blair, everyone would rally to Gordon Brown's dual competence. It doesn't really work like that, I know. But I don't think we should sort of look on admiringly at the introduction of that particular vein of populism into British life. Well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we admire it. I'm suggesting that if you don't analyse it properly, you won't know how to counter it. Um, I totally agree. It is extremely dangerous. What's happening in America now, I find deeply disturbing. Uh, I think America is robust. I think America will survive it. But it's going through a real period of agony as a direct result of the sort of populism that I was trying to describe and you were describing. Now, in this country, uh, our defence against it, we don't have to cope with presidential um, primaries and and, and elections, which is your great expertise, Jonathan. But what we do have is we have tiered democracy. We have parliamentary democracy. We have intermediate stages between the electorate and the prime minister. And those intermediate stages are absolutely vital. And they are the defence against populism in the sense in which we're discussing it. Now, they are appallingly bad at reforming themselves. 
Um, if you just take one area of British public debate at the moment, which is what we do about Scotland, um, Northern Ireland and Wales, um, it, it screams for constitutional reform of some sort. It gets absolutely nowhere. Boris Johnson despised it. He said devolution was a mistake. Um, we've got to find ways of reforming these uh, institutions, intermediate, intermediate institutions of democracy, if we're going to withstand the populist menace, which is a menace, I agree. Simon, I want to bring in some of the questions from the audience. We're getting quite a few coming in. Um, and just on that question of, of reform um, and where the system now stands, we've got a question here from Bernard Howard, who asks, Johnson rewrote the rules and standards of public life, you know, when one should resign, ethics, proroguing parliament. Has public life been irretrievably damaged for the worse? No, I just don't think so. I, I mean, come on now. I, I, I'm no fan of Johnson, but we've got to keep saying something's in proportion. I mean, the guy did resign when the men in grey came to see him, as they traditionally did in the Conservative Party. Um, uh, the, the guy did occasionally apologise for what he did wrong. Um, most of his misdemeanours were, were, were not on the same scale as most of the major issues he had to confront in three years. But what's been an appalling time to be prime minister. I can't imagine a time outside wall uh, when the job of prime minister has been more difficult than he's found it. He wasn't up to it. All right. But let's try and keep it in some sort of proportion. Um, so I, I think I think we, we, we just need to we need to realise where things didn't go right. We need to realise where reform is needed. And we are appallingly bad because we haven't got a constitution, I think, we're appallingly bad at knowing where we've got to reform that constitution. And by gosh, we've got to get down to it now. Jonathan, do you think the standards in public life have been eroded almost irretrievably by, by the last few years? They've been eroded. Uh, they, there's a question about irretrievable, um, mm. and that will partly be now, and there's a battle, I think, underway, and it'll be an interesting one. And in some ways, the conversation Simon and I and you are having now is, part, is show, suggest the outlines of that, and that will be this debate about his legacy. So if Conservatives conclude that this was a disaster for them, that they took a wrong turn, that they ended up trampling on a whole lot of values they hold dear, um, then I think it's not irretrievable because the pendulum will swing back the other way. Mm. But if they conclude um, that, you know what, this kind of worked for us, actually, and we, yeah, he overdid it or he was... He made a misstep, but otherwise this got us that big 80 seat majority and that's the way to go. And actually, yeah, you can rewrite the ministerial code and you can sack a ministerial advisor and you can get um, um, you know, donors who are not fully disclosed to pay for your wallpaper and, and you know, push your luck and get 150,000 quid treehouse for your kids, for your child, even as you are denying free school meals during the holidays to go with those children who would otherwise go hungry. If they think you can get away with all of that, um, you know, a, a Conservative party that was partying and drinking during lockdown the night before the funeral of Prince Philip, you know, the Conservatives were meant to be the people who didn't like all that stuff. But if they can, so if they are, recoil from this period and say, we must never go back to that, this was, you know, we, we lost our, who we are, you know, then I think retrievable. If on the other hand they think, yeah, yeah the, the new normal, um, and this becomes the new normal, then I think something quite big will have been lost. Um, we've got another question here from Debbie Allen asking, isn't this refusal to leave, or certainly you know, the, the reluctance, um, classic Trumpian behaviour? Is he trying to emulate Trump? Um, and the, you know, we've seen from January the 6th what happens with that level of delusion. 
Jonathan, that's that's your patch. What is this Trumpian behaviour? Is this Trumpian behaviour? And and well, could it could it become more damaging? You know, perhaps not a full on um, January the sixth style riot, but you know, what more damage could could be done in the next few months if he hangs on? Yeah. Um, so look, I think it, it's not he hasn't gone full Trump because, like I said, he's not summoning a mob to Downing Street. You know, he 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 could have made a speech like that saying you voted for me, 14 million of you. And where are you? And, you know, but he didn't do that. So that's where we have, a, you know, Simon's call for a sense of perspective is right about that, that, you know, uh, he hasn't done that or got close to that. Um Nevertheless, I think if he stays in office a long time and tries to, uh, you know, he was pushing things to the to the outer limits in these last few days, where mm. he was losing cabinet ministers and then just sort of um, saying, "Doesn't matter, I'm going to appoint other ones in their place." I mean, if he if he'd been allowed to go on much longer, and you imagine where you had ministries unfilled. Uh, or people who were, you know, egregiously, woefully un- unqualified to do those jobs, that would be bad. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's, you have to listen to his own colleagues who are saying enough's enough. He needs to be gone. But I think the kind of really uh, not just un- undemocratic, but and you know, attempts to overturn democracy and to bring in. Uh, you know, to overturn a democratic election by violence. No, he's not. He's not there. But, you know, but Trump wasn't there until the end either. You know, Trump got worse and worse and worse the longer he was there. So, um, no, I think, I think, you know, he's got those same populist impulses. He doesn't think the rules apply to him, but he hasn't gone as far. Simon, um, we've, we've got a question just sort of saying, um, what does, what do you think should happen? Can Boris stay on as a caretaker Prime Minister, or does that risk drawing great criticism and damage to the Tory party's credibility for the future? Um, what would you like to see happen now? I'd like to see him resign. I, I really do. I mean, I think I think uh, someone ought to or someone ought to take over as caretaker prime minister for 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 three or four months. Um, you cannot have um, half your cabinet resigning uh, and have any authority at all. I mean, how does a cabinet meeting be conducted when he's surrounded by people who want him gone or wanted him gone? Um, it's like facing your assassins over the dinner table. Um, I, 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 it, it doesn't, it's not plausible. And I think, um, I think as I think Jonathan suggested earlier, uh, what you do is you get this process over as quickly as you possibly can and, and, and bundle him out. But I, I, the, the most dignified thing, frankly, would be for him to go this week. Uh, that is the tradition. Uh, they normally go, the, the, the removal man is at the back and, and, um, and the new chap comes in the front. Uh, we've always done it that way. And I, 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 all I'm trying to say, I think, is at moments like this in history, you think the earth has fallen in. Um, uh, I think the systems work rather well. Uh, Boris Johnson hasn't been allowed to, ha- to stand on, to, to hang on. Um, he has been forced out. Uh, he's been told to go, not because the public wanted him to go. He's been told to go because the system wanted him to go. Um, he despised the system. He abused the system. And the system said, go. And he's gone. Uh, it is actually the system working, not necessarily a very good system, but it is the system working. I mean, it did stretch it to the limits. It did literally take an unprecedented number of ministers to resign. Well, um, well that, that, you only understand a system is working when you see its limits. Uh, yes. I, I mean, the, the, uh, I'm pretty close. I mean, the, 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 the great Arthur Sussinger always said about the American Constitution, you don't know it's working until it's almost broken. Um, and it frequently was almost broken. Uh, but but um, I think we need to look back just occasionally and see, are there any real lessons we can learn from this? 
And I think they're, 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 the, the, the lessons are about how we, how we, uh, we operate the mediating institutions of democracy, which is parliament, um, the lessons about how we, how we treat populist sentiment and how we, how we report on it. I mean, much of it's to do with the press. I mean, how we, how we publicize people, how we give them a, a platform and don't give them a platform. Um, there are all sorts of subsidiary issues that arise out of Johnson's period. But on the whole, I just still think it'll be a blip. Given the discussion we've had on on populism and how Boris Johnson sort of has really, um, in, well, introduced it, really, I suppose, to the, the British system and made it sort of a much more likely option. We've got a really interesting question here from Louis Johnson, who asks, how could we balance the need to move away from populism while properly addressing the deep concerns that it seems to speak to? Jonathan, do you want to take that first? Yes, I think it's a very good question. I do think um, there has to be uh, the only way to blunt populism of the kind I was describing is for the issues that drive people towards it and the grievances or the needs rather that drive people towards it to be addressed. So, you know, when people have had decades of, in real terms, fairly stagnant incomes and wages, now they're actually going into reverse because people, because of runaway inflation, uh, people will begin to think the system is somehow rigged against them. When they can't, can't get housing uh, for themselves or their children, they can't you know, afford to live in their own neighbourhoods, etc. when they're paying a fortune for an education that doesn't necessarily get them a decent job at the end, and so on, um, people will be receptive to an argument that says, you know, there's other people over there who are living very well, and you're not, and the system is somehow rigged. So the system does have to, or democratic politics has to prove it can deliver. It's, you know, it's no good people like me making sort of, uh, you know, writing, hand-wringing sort of earnest columns about the importance of democracy in the abstract. People have to feel that the democratic system delivers for them. If not, politicians who are either contemptuous of democracy uh, as Donald Trump was, or who play fast and loose with democratic norms, as I think is fair to say about um, Boris Johnson, those people will flourish. And so it really is on, I think this is partly what Tony Blair is talking about a lot now, when he sort of says, you know, it's, it's for everyone else who isn't on the extreme left or extreme right to prove that they can make this system work and actually deliver for people. If they don't, people are going to be very, very open to options which um, ride roughshod over those things, which I think ultimately are really essential to protect, you know, those with the least voice in our society. So rule of law sounds like a grand issue favoured by sort of QCs and judges and hamstered liberals, but actually the rule of law is what protects the weakest against the strong. Uh, and that's an example of it, but you don't really get a hearing for that if the weakest feel that the society isn't really delivering for them and they're not really getting their basic day-to-day -day needs met. We've got a question here from David Matthews who asks, um, basically, how will President Putin be viewing this resignation? Will he be happy or sad to see Boris go? I, 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 I genuinely don't think he gives a damn. Um, uh, we all assume that Putin's sitting in his office every morning shaking with fear of what new sanctions we're going to impose on him or what new weapons we're going to send to Ukraine. I just don't think he gives a damn. I really don't. Um, uh, he has uh, an extraordinary populist following while we're on the subject of populism in Russia. Uh, we should never underestimate it. 
Um, sanctions have no, I'm opposed to sanctions, have no effect on it whatsoever. Uh, it has a deep long-term effect on the Russian economy, but that's a, that would apply in a, in a nice, responsive democracy. Russia is not that. Um, where I do think we ought to be careful, there are, um, I mean, we would, we would, decrying the advent of populism in Britain. You had plenty of populist leaders in Britain down the ages. I mean, Gladstone and Disraeli were fanatical populists. populists. Um, the, the, the Liberal Democrats, I always think, is a true populist party. Um, they get lots of votes in by-elections and tend to keep them at general elections because they've managed to sell themselves very successfully. Uh, I mean, we, we just got to be very careful of supposing revolutions have occurred when I, just, I, I repeat myself here, but I just don't think they have occurred. Um, we had we had a bit of testing, yes, but for goodness sake, the roof hasn't fallen in. I mean, it, I suppose it's sort of the difference between popular and populism where, you know, we, we have had populist parties in the past, but this sort of we very rarely had them in power. Um, we've got an interesting question here um, from um Sahid Adibite, I hope I pronounced that right, saying, how would you react to those that argue the devil you know is better than, um, suggesting there isn't a credible list of potential successors, which I think is a good time really to, to find out what you think about the runners and riders. So, um, Jonathan, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, this goes to a very interesting challenge now for Labour, who were, had mixed feelings about removing Boris Johnson, partly because they thought he was he had become beatable, that the electoral asset had become an electoral liability. And their problem has always been, will voters feel uh, in 2022 as they did in 1990, which is the, lead, the leader we didn't like has gone, then Thatcher, and now Boris Johnson. And now there's been a change of government, then John Major, and now someone else. So the challenge for Labour is to sort of toxify the entire Conservative uh, Party uh, brand, not just, and, not, and not just let it be sort of contained to Boris Johnson. And therefore, they have to look at all these next round of leaders and say, uh, well, they're all as... Uh, they're all as bad as each other. Um, the interesting thing is then, again, it goes back to what Tories themselves think about this period. If they are recoiling from it, thinking we must be free of any taint of it, they won't go to anybody who served in Boris Johnson's cabinet. And so suddenly you'll be, they'll be looking at the Tom Tugendhats and the Jeremy Hunts. I don't think that will happen, by the way. Um, instead, they're going to be looking at uh, the people in that circle. And we know the names of the various runners and riders. I think Nadim Zahawi begins in quite a strong position as chancellor, just because that's a big job and that's uh, good. Sajid Javid has a kind of, uh, has a bit of authority because he was the one who made the first move. I think Rishi Sunak has very little because he was a follower, not a leader, even if it was minutes, but he should have gone in the middle of Partygate. He didn't, he waited. Uh, and that suggests someone who's um, lacks lack some of that kind of political you know, strength um, that you need. He's also got that whole non-dom financial problem. You cannot be on the rich list and be prime minister in the middle of a cost of living crisis, I don't think. Um, so, uh, you know, and, the, and then the John Major rule uh, is that it's of 1990 was that it's somebody you're not thinking about. Um, and it's a surprise. As it happens, John Major had only just been made chancellor. I think he'd been chancellor for three months mm. when he became prime minister in 1990. So that, so that, you know, it might be worth putting a fiver on Nadim Zahawi for that reason. Um, that's an interesting question for the Tory party membership. The one thing I will, you know, whether they are ready to elect, uh, a, a, you know, a Muslim prime minister, that's a really interesting thing. The, again, untested, 
uh, there's been a, it's striking to me the last three chancellors of this country country are uh, have the names Nadim Zahawi, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid. That's not something that somebody would have predicted 30 years ago. But will the Tory party rank and file be happy to vote for somebody um, who fits that profile? And then the last point I would just make is whenever there's a leadership election in the Tory party, it's always been the case that they always vote for whoever is most anti-European. It doesn't matter who, what the choice is, whoever is most anti-European tends to win. And so that would be, if you apply that guide, that's why I eliminate Jeremy Hunt and Tom Tukenhart, by the way. Um, it won't be one of them, I don't think. Uh, but, you know, one, one, one of that field, one of that crop. Jonathan, you, you talked about um, Jonathan, you talked about Nadine Zahawi. I just wanted to check before before we've hear from Simon. Um, do you think in the last twenty four hours has he, has he blown it at all with the rank and file? How will they view his? his... Yeah, he he. I agree. I was. I didn't want to bang on too long. I was going to give you that parenthesis because the the, the thing about him is he's potentially alienated the pro Boris people and the anti Boris people because yes. he's you know he's he was. The pro-Boris people liked the, the fact, maybe, that he, Boris Johnson, I should say, the pro-Johnson people, uh, that he, he was prepared to take the job from Johnson, some will like that, but then he turned on him yesterday, some will dislike that. So he won't win any points that way, and he may have, he may indeed have done himself some damage there. I mean, whether it can be over, um, outweighed by what he did on vaccines, etc. who knows? Um, ben Wallace looks, you know, some people may feel he looks the part, but he doesn't quite have the sort of political chops for that. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what Simon thinks. Yeah, Simon, who, well, who, who uh, are your runners and writers? I mean, whenever I ask this question, you give a mixed answer. You partly say who you'd like to be, you then partly <laughs> say who you think will be. And these are often not the same people, but they all get mixed up in the same melange. Um, so who would you quite, like? I wasn't quite sure which 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 side uh, which side um, uh, Johnny was on. But anyway, um, uh, I'd li I'd like to see. Sorry, this this is irrelevant. I and mean, I think I would like to see Rishi Sudak. I think he showed himself um, a considered, careful, uh, moderate, um, uh, unspectacular leader. Um, he's very young. Um, yeah, I, I I doubt that he'll get it. You asked me who I'd like to see. Um, I honestly think, apart from him, they're all untried and untested. And one of the tragedies of Boris Johnson, possibly the greatest tragedy of Boris Johnson's leadership, was his dismissal of four, five, six people who would perfectly competently take over from him. And they've all gone, many of them out of Parliament. That was totally outrageous and indefensible. And that's the thing I really would most accuse him of being. Um, as for who is likely to get it, uh, I don't know. I think Europe is possibly off the agenda at long last. I mean, we're out of Europe. Um, uh, I, it's not very wise. I don't think anyone's saying we ought to go back in. Sorry, no one who's a candidate for leadership at the moment. Um, but I do think the question of where you stand on, on um, uh, high public spending as against tax cuts and so on is going to be quite critical. But again, I still think probably at the end of the day, they want someone who's likely to appeal to the electorate. Uh, and there it's just very difficult to see who it's going to be. I think probably it won't be anybody we've thought of. Um, we've got a question here from Sue Sanders, uh, and I suppose we, we are sort of coming up to the end, but I just wanted to look at this period until there is a new leader um, and trying to work out what happens. And we've got a couple of questions about it. One from Sue Sanders is, if Boris Johnson does carry on as the caretaker, what sort of policy initiative could he kickstart that would cause real damage in terms of creating dissension within the Tory party or creating one of the ongoing culture wars, or you know, what what are the what are your fears for what he might try to do during that period? Um, and we've got a, another question 
um, from Jonathan Cassian, which just asks, what you know, how do we manage with this leadership vacuum until the the autumn when we've got sort of huge issues like Ukraine, cost of living crisis, EU negotiations going on. Um, so I, if you want to tackle both of those, um, Simon, do you want to go first? I, it's, I, I find that it's an impossible question to answer because I find it pretty inconceivable that Johnson can find himself in that position. I just think he's got to go. Uh, I, I really, I'm, but it, in that case, I mean, um, would you worry about having a caretaker, whether it's Dominic Raab or somebody else, um, while we've got sort of crises like Ukraine and and anything anything that uh, interim prime minister does is going to have to be negotiated with his party. It's simple mm-hmm. as that. Uh, Germany has been a wonderful essay in, in, in since since Angela Merkel went. Um, almost everything was decided by by a, a bipartisan or tripartisan committee of the of, of the of the Bundesrat. It was wonderful. Everybody said, "What what, what terrific decisions they're taking." Um, uh, so I, I I think we we ought to be trying new things, but I I don't think there's a danger. Um, what the question is asking of, of some daring new initiative emerging from an interim administration. I really don't know. Jonathan? What was the second half of that? There was another question you're, the questioner asked so, after the... So yeah. it's um, if he carries on as caretaker, um, yeah. what would you worry about in terms of policy? Oh, yes, no, no, I thought there was... Sort of red I, meat. And the, yes. the, the, the other question from yeah, Jonathan Cassian is, is just that if he doesn't carry on, if you end up with somebody like Dominic Robb stepping in, would you worry about the leadership vacuum until the autumn at a time Good. of crisis. That, that was the one I, I wanted to get into first. Um, mm. And the reason why I don't worry is I'm quite persuaded by this view that we haven't really had a government for quite a long time. We've had a permanent rolling campaign and that Boris Johnson was really a uh, permanent, uh, uh, you know, impermanently in election mode. He wasn't really coming out with programs and plans and legislation uh, that would be uh, viable. Instead, he was just engaged in positioning and you know, drawing bright dividing lines and so on. And therefore, the actual business of governing, the sort of dull business of competent governing, I don't think it really was happening. Uh, and therefore, I don't think we'd feel particularly the gap, we would actually feel a weight off our shoulders by having this person who's no longer there just constantly stoking and provoking culture wars. And I think it, we, after a while, you get very near to it and used to it, but somebody who's constantly pitting, this, by the way, is another thing he had with, in common with Trump, hmm. constantly pitting one group of Britons against another. is just, a, you know, it became part of the sort of background noise of day-to-day life, but it is quite... A, um, uh, debilitating it, going on all the time when you know uh, the it, whether it's about woke stuff or statues or whatever it is there's always something and uh, so that is really dispiriting and I think we'll feel relieved that it hasn't happened uh, similarly I'm, I'm, I find it hard to think of some very specific tangible thing he would try to do but you know I almost don't want to mention it because don't want to give him any ideas but you wouldn't put it past him <laughs> That he would think of, of Operation Red Meat, Operation Big Dog. Are they sort of you, going to be revitalized from the last? That's right. The very you never end. know what he might. You never know what he might try and do. I, I want to agree with Simon on one thing, though, and that is this point about his Johnson's removal of a whole lot of people of talent, the eviction of those twenty-one. You know, no, the people who were against No Deal. It did do something really bad for the Conservative Party, but in a way also for the country. It did, you know, absolutely shrink the talent pool. And one of the really discreditable things Johnson has done is to have this cabinet of um, sort of midgets um, that he that he liked politically, political midgets, because he thought it meant that he could tower above them and and look better. 
by having the so many talentless people around. But it means you then don't have, and it's a sign always of a very weak manager or leader of a team when they feel they won't, don't want any kind of tall poppies around them. Uh, he That's what he did. And that, that's one of the things that Tory party now have to contend with, which is they don't really have a very good field to pick from because he got rid of some of the really, you know, one of the person you asked me who I would like, I wouldn't like any of them, but the one person I probably could have lived with as a conservative prime minister, you know, now presents a podcast with Alistair Campbell, you know, Rory Stewart is spending his time doing that. And that's because yeah. Boris Johnson got rid of a lot of the the more talented figures from his own party. And just very quickly, do you think now that Boris Johnson is almost gone, do you think the Conservative Party can become sort of more of a, a broad church again? Will it revitalise and, and include elements who sort of felt they had to leave? It very possibly could, um, especially if they have managed to have a leader who isn't part of the Brexit wars and part of that history. I don't know who that would be. Um, but no, they have that chance. And the one thing I would never write off is the Conservative Party. It is the most successful election winning machine in global political history, as far as I understand it. So don't write them off. They'll, they always adapt, they change shape and they come back. Well, we have completely run out of time, but thank you both for, for joining us on this historic day. Um, my, my thanks to Jonathan Friedland, Simon Jenkins, to everybody who's tuned in. Thanks very much for joining us and to Intelligence Squared. 